0: we got a lot to cover. Grab your Bibles. Revelation chapter 6 and 7 is where we're going to be this morning. And this is where the book starts to get really interesting uh, and really maybe a bit more confusing when we get into some judgment. So that's what you came today to hear, judgments. You guys ready for that? Does anybody want to leave now? Too late. Let's do it. Uh, this is where it can get... Um, get really interesting and making sense of this letter can be tricky because you got like visions and numbers and symbols and imagery and all things. Um, But what's fitting is not just making sense of this letter can be tricky, but making sense of this world can be tricky. When we're like, why is this happening? Why is there so much brokenness around me? Why does... uh, Bad things happen. Why, why do we go through struggles? If God is loving and caring, why would he allow this? Like making sense of life is tricky. But I think uh, what we're going to see here in, uh, in our text today can be helpful. Um, and here's what tends to happen. When suffering and hardship and brokenness just kind of keep coming and keep coming and keep coming, it can seem to steal our hope and our endurance. And maybe it's expressed this way. And Maybe some of you can relate to this. I'm just tired of all the injustice in the world. I'm just tired of the brokenness. I'm sick of my own sin struggle. I'm tired of the corruption. Can anybody identify with that? Six of us. And the other, you guys get out more, all right? You will run into the broken. Even if you don't, get out more. Look in the mirror, all right? We have struggles, and it's just kind of, after a while, it can just kind of wane on us, and we just begin to want to throw in the towel. But what if there was a perspective that would help us endure? What if there was a perspective that would help us not lose hope? And I think that's what we get in this vision. Uh, Jesus is like, let me help you see it differently. Because remember the audience, he's writing to a struggling, persecuted group of Christians. He's saying, let me help you have a different vantage point of what you're going through. So last week, Ian walked us through Revelation 4 and 5, and you get this majestic kind of throne room in heaven vision. And it's awesome. And John is there. And this is what's kind of the twist what's John doing? He's crying. John is in heaven and he's crying. And it's not like tears of joy. It's like frustration because you remember what's going on there. There's the scroll and the scroll is like the will of God or the plan of God or the rule of God in this world. And he's crying because no one can open the scroll. There's no one to open the scroll. And if no one can open the scroll, then we're kind of left in the dark. Like, how's this going to play out? Who's going to fix this brokenness? And what is the plan of God? And what is the rule of God on this broken world? There's like no light at the end of the tunnel. That's why John is frustrated and he's in tears because heaven is great. It's majestic and God is getting worshiped and this is awesome. However, there's a bis- big disconnect from that and what's going on on earth. And he's saying, well, who's going to fix this? Who's going to bridge this? And who, who can fix that, church? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. He, he's worthy to open this scroll. And now the scroll begins to get open. Now remember the scroll here doesn't get opened. Uh, they're just peeling off the seal. So if you had a rolled up scroll and kind of seven seals keeping it rolled up, we're just beginning to peel off the seals. So these are things that precede the opening of the scroll. So we're going to get right into it. I got more notes than I should have um, and we'll see what we get to. So chapter six, let's jump right in. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. That's my thunder voice. That's the best I can do. (laughs) And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, we're going to get introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, all right? So that's where we're going today. We get introduced, and the first one is the white horse. And we're trying to make sense of these. And some people look at this, and they think, oh, that's Jesus Christ. Because the white horse, coming in white horse in Revelation chapter 19, uh, he's coming to conquer. Uh, but I don't think that theme lines up. In chapter 6, you get more of a theme of, of death and judgment happening. And in chapter 19, where we see Christ coming on the white horse, it's like righteous victory and retribution happening in that chapter. Another interpretation I think makes more sense is that it represents general military conquest. Um, Just kind of this thirst for power uh, that's being kind of imposed in our world by different individuals. Um, others think, which is possible that this also represents the antichrist or the false Christ, uh, because the real Christ does come in on the white horse, but the cheap imitation, uh, comes in on a white horse. He just doesn't bring justice and a new heavens and a new earth. He brings war and chaos and division as he tries to spread his power, even though he wasn't meant to have power. Um, but we're told that there are going to be many antichrist. We're going to have many antichrists, many people who oppose Christ. And a lot of people are going to try to establish their own rule. And then you get to the second horse. He says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the red horse represents war. And it follows kind of the white horse of a, of a ruler trying to uh, conquer, and he brings war with that. And then the third seal, when he opened the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. So you kind of get uh, this picture of famine. The cost of food is outrageous, and that's impacting the world in a negative way. And then you get to the fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So a pale horse, literally the color is yellowish green. So sorry if that's your favorite color. Uh, but it's the color of gross, or it's the color of sickness. It's what, like if, you're, if you look really sick, it's like this is the word they would use to describe your, your, the look of your face, and it represents death. It's kind of a result of the other three things. When you have uh, bad leaders trying to uh, assert their dominance, bringing war, famine, uh, it leads to death. And you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, well, this horse imagery is not new here. Um, this isn't the first time we see it or something that John is making up. Uh, this comes from Zechariah, and it's a picture of God's judgment. As they kind of... Uh, uh, comb the earth and bring about God's judgment. Uh, And each creature kind of shouts, come, right? And then out comes this horse, this one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, this judgment coming on the earth. And I don't know if like when they say come smoke kind of bellows up acdc back and black comes on and they start strolling out but that's kind of the feel that i want you to get because it's like it's mma it's fight like there's an intensity to this judgment's coming like this thundering voice and out comes this scary like judgment coming on the earth and there's a lot of intensity behind that and then you get into the fifth seal And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, I know it's obvious, but I just want to state it. These are people who have died for following Jesus Christ. The reason that they have died, they've been martyred for their testimony of the gospel. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When they we each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Now, <clears throat> we really need to get what's being said here. There's a comforting part of being said, and there, there's a challenging part to this. To a group of people that John is writing to that are facing death for following Jesus Christ, um, you get a peek onto the other side. It's like, hey, you're with God. There's you get a white robe. You, you, you're in peace. Like, there's, there's comfort to that. But uh, here's the challenging part. Part of God's plan is that more people have to die. More of his people have to die. Like, that's part of the plan. And, and notice, even in the other side of death, in heaven, there's an eagerness for justice. How long do we have to wait until you go avenge what was done to us? Like there's this crying out to God, like, let's go. Let's get this on. When is, when is vengeance and justice going to be seen for the people who killed us? And God answers, who is in control of all this, of be patient. Wait a little longer because more of my people have to die. And get this now. And that's God's plan. That's his plan. In fact, he says a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. It's not complete yet. As in my sovereign plan, I have ordained more of my people to die because of following me and the number of people I have planned to die for me haven't yet died for me, so you've got to wait a little bit longer till they die. Is that comforting? That's what he's saying. This is God's plan. here's what we need to see. This could be hard, but this is what we need to see. This, I'm going to give you the first part of the big idea. And then we're going to talk some more. And then towards the end, I'll give you the second part of the big idea. I'm going to make you wait for it, okay? But here's the first part. God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over suffering. And remember who he's writing to. Like, they're in the midst of it. Like, they're in a deep struggle. And he's saying, hey, God is sovereign over this. It's part of God's plan that more of you will die. When you look at the, the judgments coming of the four horsemen, they come when the seal is open. Well, who opens the seal? Jesus opens the seal. The reason they're coming to bring judgment on the earth is because Jesus opened the seal. Or you get into uh, the white horse was given a crown Uh, the red horse was permitted uh, to take peace from the earth Uh, the red horse was given a great sword the black horse was given orders or parameters Uh, the pale horse was given authority uh, over a fourth of the earth to bring death to them like god is sovereign over all of this suffering it's happening because he ordains it he's he's over it and we struggle with that because like why God, if you care, if you're loving, if you're in control, why are you ordaining this? Why are you letting this happen? Why is this going on? Why, why don't you step in? How long do we got to wait? Like, there's this frustration behind that. Like, I don't know if you are following our Bible reading plan, but just even recently when we've worked through Job. Like, Job is a righteous man who goes through all this suffering. And if you get to the, the front part of the book, you kind of get the behind-the-scenes look at why that happened. And God kind of brings Job up to Satan. Have you seen my servant? Have you seen how faithful he is? And then God allows Satan to punish, to persecute, to torment him, to show his faithfulness. Like the strategy of suffering of God's people reveals their legitimate faith in Christ. Right? And poor old Job, he doesn't even get a backstory. God never in the whole book is like, Job, you've done great, but here's what happened. You've got to understand, like he was accusing you. He'd say you'd sell me out. Like we had to do that. He didn't do that at all. In fact, the only thing that Job gets at the end of the book is like a tongue lashing from God of saying, hey, stay in your lane. I'm God. You're not. Right? That, that's, that's what you get. But there's this like strategy behind suffering that's saying like God is behind this and he's doing something and he's proving or showing the faithfulness of his people or revealing illegitimate faith. But this is what we need to see. God is in control of all this. He's sending out the horsemen. He's giving parameters, and the sword, and permission. He's saying, wait, I have more to die. Like God is in control of all this. And that can be hard to swallow. But, but listen, when it comes to suffering, you really only got three options of making sense of it. Either it's just random, and we live in a crazy world, and it just happens. Some people get cancer, some people don't. Some people get in a car accident, some people don't. Some people lose their jobs, some people don't. Like, it just happens. But if it's random, who's in control? Or, or maybe it's retributive, like karma. If, if something bad's happening to you, that's because you probably did something bad. And what goes around comes around. Like, that, that you, you did something, and this is what's causing that. Or... It's redemptive. And there is a sovereign God at work behind all things, and he's working all things to his good purposes. And the revelation of Jesus Christ that we're studying here to these persecuted believers and to us is saying it's redemptive. God's in control of this. God is sovereign over it. God's directing it. And he's working it to his good plans. He's in control. So then you get to the sixth seal. He says this. So anytime in the Revelation you get this idea of a great earthquake, like this is apocalyptic, end-of-the-world type of language. The sky's rolling up like a scroll. The sun's blacking out. Mountains are getting moved. Like this is a a decreation that's happening. Creation itself is being taken apart in kind of final judgment language, and decreation is happening to make way for a new creation, right? Because what happens at the end? We get a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, one one commentator put it this way. Humanity has become so perverted and has worshipped the creation over the creator. It's Romans 1. Therefore, creation itself has become an idol that needs to be removed. It's become an idol that needs to be removed. Like, this world is just coming to end. Now, I want to just really quick rabbit show because I think we need to address it when we're at this point in the text when it says things like this. I want to just touch on environmentalism. We just studied Genesis last time when we see the world being created and man being put in the center of the garden. And we're to subdue it and take care of it and and watch over it. And we are stewards of God's creation. We are to take care of this earth. However, when people start talking about Mother Earth and our responsibility to save her, and if we don't do something about it, we're going to destroy our planet, we are denying the sovereignty of God over his creation destroying earth is above any of our pay grade. The earth will end. This is how the earth will end, and there is no stopping it, and there is no escape. And people today in our culture make decisions with no idea of consequences. And you get this language, and he's saying, the kings of the earth... And the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling that the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. There is no escaping it. You cannot hide from Jesus Christ. You cannot escape judgment. And it's coming. This is how the earth will end. There's no stopping it. There's no escaping it. And either what you worship will be destroyed or who you worship will be revealed. You track with me on that? Like if everything is kind of being unmade, what you worship is going to be destroyed or God remains who you worship will be revealed. Like when creation begins and judgment happens, it's either going to be like, no, or come on, which is going to be your response. Now, before we jump into chapter 7, I know I'm going fast. We've got a lot to cover, and, and I don't want us to miss the main point in a lot of kind of maybe confusing texts. But let me point out that there's a divide in interpretation moving forward, and good and godly people disagree. So just chill out, okay? <clears throat> there's, there's understandable different interpretations to this. But the question is, we've got seven seal judgments that we're looking at. Then you've got seven trumpet judgments. you get got seven bowl judgments. And the question is, are these like 21 separate acts of judgment happening one after another in kind of a sequential order in a small window of time at the very end of history? It's called the Great Tribulation. People think like a seven-year period of time. They get that from Daniel chapter 9. We won't go into that, but there's a, there's a reason to think that from that, that passage, and that's the Great Tribulation and what's happening. Or is the Great Tribulation the period of time between the resurrection of Christ and his second coming, and the seals, and the trumpets, and the bulls are parallel looks at life in that time period. Here's what it looks like to be a Christian in this, this time period. Or are they parallel looks at life between the first and second coming of Christ leading up to a more intense period of persecution? I tend to think it's the last one, but even that, there's some difficulty of like, uh, well, it gets more intense for who? Because if you're a Christian living in Sudan, you're like, it's pretty intense. Right, But if you're like homeschooling in Montana, you're like, this is great, right? (laughs) But but you do seem like there's this escalation of intensity that's happening. And one of the reasons I tend to think that is if you turn over to Matthew uh, chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, um, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Starting in verse 3, He, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. Seems kind of like the white horse and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars kind of seems like the red horse. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, kind of like the black horse, and the earthquakes, and and various places. And all those kind of result in death from people. And these are but the beginnings of birth pains. So I don't know, on our staff, we've had a lot of new babies. I don't know how it is going in here. But if it's the beginning of birth pains, what does that tell you? A lot of labor left, right? There's more to come. Verse 9 says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Sounds like the fifth seal. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, so there's an increasing of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures will, to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So what he's saying is like, okay, think about this. When Jesus was asked by his disciples about this end of the age, his counsel to them was, hey, well, don't be fooled. Okay, so take a deep breath. Don't don't get tied up in things. Like, don't be fooled. And he's saying there's a lot of stuff that's got to happen before the end comes. And then he goes on to describe wars and suffering and persecution and famine and martyrdom and all along the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the age, to the ends of the earth. And you're like, well, Doesn't that kind of describe our history? Like from the time Jesus ascended, what has been happening? There's been persecution. There's been famine. There's been uh, evil people trying to exert their power. There's been uh, uh, oppositions. And there's been the unstoppable spread of the gospel through it all. Whether it's in the Amazon forest or Papua New Guinea or Rome itself, like the gospel is just going forth and it's unstoppable. And then you'll see an increase in lawlessness. Or like birth pains, it's going to get more intense and more intense and more intense. Then you have a baby, right? And then the Lord comes, and then new life happens. So this image that I think we're getting in these seals is like a a picture of life on earth under judgment. Like this is what it looks to follow Christ, under judgment. But John is about to get a different vantage point of it that I think is helpful for us in enduring that. So then you get into chapter 7. This is what he says. To harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So you got four angels holding back the four winds of the earth so that the earth will not be harmed. So think about this. This can't be chronological because the earth was just destroyed at the end of chapter six. So when he says, After this, I saw this, it's not like after that happened, then this happened. That just wouldn't make sense. What he's saying is, After I saw this, Then I saw this. So after I saw chapter 6 and all the judgment, it was like, okay, come look at it from this vantage point. And when I look at it from this vantage point, I see something different. I got a different look at it. He gave me a different vantage point to this. After I saw judgment in chapter 6, I come over and I get a different vantage point, and I see the restraint of those judgments happening. There's angels holding back, These ones don't don't do it yet. Not not until everyone sealed by God is is rescued. So it's like these creatures call out these horsemen, but these they also got a leash. (laughs) They're like, all right, you're coming out, but you're on a leash. So the harm is limited because God is sovereign over it, and it's limited until the servants of God have been sealed on their foreheads. Now we'll get into this more uh, as we get into the mark of the beast. But this is what you need to know in the Book of Revelation. You either get marked by the beast or you get marked by God. You're either going to be marked by the beast or you're going to be marked by God. And there's a little bit of like pick a side. Pick a side. Do you want to suffer now and be rescued by God? Or do you want to fit in now and be judged by God? You choose. Pick a side. That's kind of like you're going to be marked by the beast or you're going to be marked by God. And it's kind of put before people. But there's no more country music Christianity. You You know what I mean by that? Where it's like you can sing about getting wasted and sleeping with your girlfriend and going to church in the same song. None of that. He's saying pick a song. Right? Country fans, I'm sorry. It's true. <laughs> but we hear like Mark of the Beast or get marked on your forehead. And it's like ah, oh, a radar goes up. And it's like they are going to put a chip in your forehead or what's going to happen. But listen, that would not make any sense to John's original audience. Like a computer chip in your forehead. Like they would not get that. But hear me now being marked on your forehead would mean something to John's original audience. I have to ask, well, what would it mean? Where where does that come from? This goes back to um, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. This is the Shema. Uh, This was a major part of of Jewish life. Uh, They would say this every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes or on your forehead. Right? And some people in the Jewish community took this literally. They had like a a little box. They put like little uh, scrolls of scripture in that but what he's saying is like no we need to be people who are marked by God like on your like our thinking needs to be shaped by the word of God our hands our actions need to be shaped by the word of God are you somebody who is marked by God i think this is conversion this is being a new creation and, and this seal i think points to the holy spirit you get this in a uh, second Uh, Corinthians chapter 1 it says and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his what seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee like I got you I put my seal on you or here it is is in Ephesians chapter 1 in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him so you became a Christian what happened you were what sealed with the promise of who? The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Like, yeah, I marked you. You're mine. I put my spirit in you. Like, this is what He's talking about. But then again, I think... Ezekiel best helps us understand what is getting ahead, because Ezekiel is all over the book of Revelation. I know you probably haven't, like, read a lot of Ezekiel. It's tricky. Um, but, but if you understand Ezekiel, John is using a lot of that language. And in Ezekiel, it addresses being marked on your forehead. But this is what it says in Ezekiel. Now, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, on which it rested to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist, was recording this prophecy. And this is what he says. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it it's like, all right, what does it mean to be marked on your forehead? What what is he getting at? Who is marked? He's like, people that sigh and groan over the sin that's happening in our world. It's like, that's a sign, like my people. People that are not okay with sin. People, when you look and you see injustice and you see sin struggles and corruption and sexual immorality happening all around you and there's something in you, it's just like, come on. Are you kidding me? You're just frustrated with the brokenness in our world. It bothers you. God's like, those are my people. Those are my people. So we have a lot to groan about and sigh about in a world. What is great about our cultural moment is there's no more sitting on the fence. Like the more our society gets secular, the more it's like, Pick a side. Like, are you going to be marked by this world, or are you going to be marked by God? Are you going to fit in now and be judged later, or are you going to suffer now and be rescued later? What team are you on? Pick a side. And and listen, guys, I want you to hear this. In our culture, Christianity is going to become less popular and more potent. It's going to become less popular and more potent. What I mean by that is in our society, you're not going to get, like, social points for being a Christian. Like, that term will be used more derogatory. But those that are, like, they're going to groan over evil. They're going to hate it. They're going to see Jesus as king of, of all of their life. It's going to be, like, none of this lukewarm stuff. It's going to be less popular, but it's going to be more potent. And they're kind of in this kind of cooking of, of testing and judgment. And they saying, hey, this struggle, it's a revealer. Like, my people are going to They're going to be shown true and faithful in this. But what is, uh, John is being shown here that we need to get is that evil will be restrained until all of God's people are saved, until they come to faith. So, yeah, there's suffering, but there's also a seal. So, yeah, there's suffering, but there's also like, yeah, but I got you. Like, you're mine. I marked you. I, I got, I'm able to rescue you. That's what is being seen here. And then, then he says this. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then you get this listing of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. That's where you get the 144,000. But here's the question. Is that a literal number or a symbolic number? Is that talking about a literal group of ethnic Israelites that will get saved in the future or is that a symbolic number of the kind of the completion of God's people? Cuz then you jump over to uh, verse 9. And he says, after this, this is right after the description of the 144,000 of the 12 tribes. He says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robes. So is this a description of the same group of people or a different group of people? Now, I, I'm going to say that good and godly people disagree So you're like, I think it's the same group of people, and I think there's some clues in the text that make us conclude that. But if you go back to the listing of the 12 tribes, it's not listed this way anywhere else in Scripture. And you're like, well, did John get it wrong? I doubt that. Uh, He knows his Old Testament. It's all over the book of Revelation. So why does he do it different than it's done everywhere else in the Bible? Well, you've got to ask, well, what is different about it? And what does that mean? Well, Judah, the tribe of the Messiah, is listed first instead of Reuben, the oldest. And it's like saying, hey, there's a new chief over these people. He leaves out Dan and Ephraim, who are connected to idolatry in Israel's history. And it's like saying, hey, it doesn't matter who your dad is. This is about faithfulness. And then there's the promotion of tribes that descended from concubines over the sons of Leah and Rachel and Gad, Asher, and Natali, as in to suggest that those who were once excluded from privilege are now included. So what he's saying is, hey, this is a new look of the people of God. It's God's people. It's just different than what you might expect. And it's also a pretty specific, round, big number Like 144,000, you got 12,000 for the 12 tribes. And what he's saying is there is a completion of every tribe. There's a fullness of God's number that's come in. And God's people are saved, and it's a big bunch of people. But it's different than what you might expect. And then you get into verse 9. And notice it says, I heard the number 144,000, but then I saw a great multitude um, of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Just like over in chapter 5, I heard a lion, but I looked and I saw a lamb. It's like, so what, what was it? Was it a lion or a lamb? You betcha. And then you get here and it's like, well, what is it? Is it the 144,000 or a great multitude of every tribe, tongue, and nation? Yep. And, and you're seeing like, yeah, I, I heard this. But then I, I looked, and it was different than what I expected. Because I heard about a lion, and I saw a lamb, and well, that caught me off guard. And then I heard about the, like, every tribe of Israel's people being complete and the people of God. But then I looked at it, and that's different than what I expected. And it's like, yep, it's different than what you expected. The people of God are made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation all across this globe. And it happens because of the advancement of the gospel everywhere, like Jesus said. And this is a result of the gospel being proclaimed to the whole world. And guys, notice the diversity of God's people. He is Lord of all people. All people. And diversity is a Christian thing. It's a kingdom of God thing. But notice what unifies this diverse group of people. Because this is what I think the world doesn't get how are a diverse group of people so unified and what would do that laws how does this like group that speak different languages that look different that have different cultures kind of brought together what unifies them is it their language no is it their culture no it's their clothes You're like Just kidding, but not really. Here's what he says. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. They're all wearing the same thing. But it's not just wearing the same thing. It means something. These are all people who have been saved by King Jesus, who have been rescued, redeemed, have the righteousness of Christ in them. That's what unifies them. Listen, God's kingdom is very diverse and exclusive. God's kingdom is very diverse and exclusive. Everyone is welcome who bows. Every, everyone from every tribe, tongue, nation can come to this family who bows to King Jesus. And hear me now the kingdom of God will be diverse, it will be representative from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All of these people are God's people, and what makes them one is a shared salvation by grace through King Jesus and a worship of Jesus. That's what unites us. Now, the point being made here is that God saves his people despite the judgment and the chaos and the brokenness or the location of where they're at. God is able to rescue his own, and here's what we need to know. We'll put the big idea all together. God is sovereign over suffering, and he will see his people through it. God is sovereign over suffering, and he will see his people through it. Let me just read. You guys have heard this before, but I think it speaks to this point so well. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who, sh- who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation that He's speaking about here, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or any one of those horses, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, what are these things? This great tribulation, this persecution, this distress, this famine, this opposition, all those things where you think we're losing, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God knows how to save his people. Like no matter what they're going through, God is sovereign over suffering and he will see his people through it. And if we don't get that, we'll be overwhelmed by what we go through. And it'll suck the hope out of us, and it'll challenge our endurance, and the attitude that will begin to reign is, I'm just sick of this. I'm just tired of this world. I'm just done with it. I can't even anymore. And we're just kind of zapped with it. But John, who sees this like, Chapter 6, like overwhelming opposition and persecution and famine and more people have to die. He's like, okay, John, let me just give you a different vantage point. If you could come over here and look at this, I want you to see this. Their evil is being restrained. And it's being restrained until all of God's people are saved. And God knows how to save his people no matter what kind of chaos is going on in this world. So how should we respond in this? Look how it keeps going So every nation and all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever Amen. So here's what you do. What do you do in the face of hardship and difficulty and chaos and brokenness? You sing. Now, stay with me here because, like, well, I don't see, like, okay, you get in chapter 6 this picture of struggle and judgment. And then in chapter 7, you get this picture of salvation and worship. And they're meant to go side by side. They're, They're meant to go side by side. And it's a matter of perspective. John, you see this? I know you see this. This is what's going on. God is sovereign over it. But but come over here and get this look at it. It's being restrained. God will save all his people. Here's how it ends in the worship of God. Like get this vantage point. It's a matter of perspective. So what's your perspective? Do you only see the chaos and the brokenness and the sin in this world? Or do you see God's sovereign hand over all things? Can you both groan? And sigh at the injustice and brokenness and sinfulness of our world and sing to the God who is sovereign over it all? See, the best thing we can do living in a world that is broken and under judgment is not just to get all mad and worried and anxious and complain. What we need to do is express our confidence in God, to be a group of people that, despite what's going on in our world, we just keep singing. We just keep singing because we know, we, we got this vantage point. We know that evil is being restrained until all of God's people are saved. So no matter what we go through, it's like, God's got this. Like He knows how to save his people. I, he's got this. Guys, listen, suffering is a part of God's plan. It is. You may not like it. Doesn't matter. It's a part of God's plan. But the ending is amazing and it's worth it look how it ends verse 13 then one of the elders addressed me saying who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come i said to him sir you know now this is funny you don't get this because it's kind of fun this is john's vision and in this heavenly kind of vision one of the elders goes up and asks john a question right he goes up. He's like, no, I'm new here too. Who are these people? That's not. The thing. It's like he knows who they are, but he's like, hey, John, see those people? Who are they? And they're like, ah, you know, you tell me. So he does. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What an awesome ending. So listen, church, you need to put your suffering in context. Whatever you're going through, whatever injustice, whatever sin struggle, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's a loss of a job, maybe it's brokenness in your home, whatever it is. Listen, it's a chapter, but this is the story. It is a chapter, but this is how your story ends, where God will lead you to living waters and wipe every tear from your eye. You have to put your suffering in context. And the message to this persecuted group of Christians that John is addressing is the ones who stay faithful, this is what's waiting for them. This is what's waiting for them. John wanted the persecuted church to respond to these hardships with confidence in God. I know Rome is crazy and they're putting people on stakes and burning them, but God is sovereign even over that, and He knows how to rescue His people. So, yes, maybe even more of us have to die. But this is what's waiting for us. And Christians throughout history, whether, whatever evil dictator they've been under, whatever war they went through, whatever persecution, opposition, or famine they have faced, they can have confidence in God that he is sovereign over suffering and he knows how to save his people. And listen, church, the same is true for us. No matter what you are going through, no matter what difficulty you are facing, you can have confidence in God He is sovereign over suffering. He has a plan, and he knows how to rescue his people. And the way through it is the blood of the lamb. Look back at verse 14. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It's our salvation. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we can have confidence. We can have confidence that our story has a good ending. So as we come and we remember the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, his body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. When you remember your suffering, think of his suffering. Because his suffering means your suffering now has a happy ending. Let's pray. Father, we know that you first loved us. And maybe there's a spirit in this room that are just just sick of this world. They're frustrated with the brokenness, the injustice, they're tired. They're your people and they groan at the injustices and the sin and how you're mistreated and not worshiped in this world. But where the temptation is just to quit, to give in, Would you give us the vantage point that we see in chapter 7? That despite the judgments on this world, you are restraining evil until the full completion of your people are saved. You know how to save your people. So as we remember our suffering, when we deal with our suffering, when we turn our eyes to your suffering, knowing that you have saved us, you have sealed us, you have marked us, and you will indeed save us. We pray this in Jesus' name. We love Jesus. Amen. Amen.